Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Keith Billick. Welcome. I'm really happy to have you joining me for another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. This is what I like to call a heavy news day here at Picky Fingers HQ. And it's it's actually just a relief to have news and things happening. We've all been shuttered down for a, a long time, and it's it's exciting to just have anything to talk about, really. So let's let's dive in. I think the biggest news that I want to make sure that I share with you is that I have scheduled the first of hopefully many, many monthly Picky Fingers VIP Lounge video chats. And VIP in this case, of course, stands for Very Important Picker. So this VIP Lounge that I have in mind, this is going to take place next Wednesday, which is April 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. And this is going to be a video chat, I think, over Google Meet. And it's just going to be a one-hour hangout session with me talking about banjos, life, questions about the podcast, anything like that. Some of these months, I will likely be inviting extra special guests who you will be familiar with from the podcast. And so that's all exciting. It'll give me a chance to get to know you guys, and we'll just uh, shoot the breeze for a while. Now, the only catch here is... In order to be invited to these VIP lounge video chats, you need to be a Patreon subscriber at the proper tier, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. That's how you go to become a subscriber. And that is largely how I get paid anything for all the hard work I do on this podcast, which of course I love, but it is time consuming and there are expenses involved. So I really appreciate everyone who supports me on Patreon. But uh, go check that out and figure out how you can become invited to this uh, VIP lounge event. Uh, Another note about that, if you are a Patreon supporter and that time and day does not work for you, I am planning to video record this and put it on a private video feed for you. So, you know, of course, it's better to have everybody there in person, but hopefully you won't miss out on too much if you have access to that video after the fact. Another Patreon reward is to get a personal shout-out of thanks from me right here on these podcasts that I make. And so today we have a very special Patreon supporter to acknowledge for their generous support. Today's official supporter of the show is Seth Hardiman. Seth has a really cool tribute that he wanted to do. It's kind of like a a Casey Kasem long-distance request and dedication. I know a few of you must get that reference. But he's he wants this shout-out to be to his cousin, Warren Kennison Jr., and also in memory of Warren's late wife, Jolene. Now, Warren, if that name sounds familiar to you, and I, I admit it did not sound familiar to me, but if you look in your trusty Earl Scruggs and the Five-String Banjo book under the introduction, it acknowledges that Warren Kennison Jr. helped make the original version of the Earl Scruggs Banjo book right alongside Bill Keith And sure enough, there is a photo of Earl playing with Warren Kennison Jr. And this is Seth's cousin. So Seth, that is an awesome story. And I'm glad you shared it with me so that I could let the listeners know about that. And uh, of course, thank you for your support on Patreon.com. So anybody who didn't catch that, head over to Patreon.com slash Banjo Podcast, sign up to support the show, and you have my undying thanks. And then you will also get some really cool rewards that you can read about there. The next order of business is to make sure everybody here knows about the Banjo Summit. Now, you might remember me 
talking about the Banjo Summit last fall. I ended up attending, and it was a fantastic experience. So here's what it's all about. The Banjo Summit is a three-day online banjo workshop, and this this time it's going to be from May 14th through 16th, 2021. And what it is is it's chock full of accessible techniques to add color to your traditional playing or to take you beyond bluegrass. And regardless of your favorite styles, the Banjo Summit Online is going to expand your expertise and inspire countless new ideas that will raise your playing to new heights. I can definitely say that after I attended this last fall, I definitely felt uh, very inspired by all the, the knowledge that I was able to soak up. But here is the best part about Banjo Summit. Listen to this all-star faculty. It's going to be Kristen Scott Benson, Wes Corbett, Seamus Egan, Eli Gilbert, Penn Krakauer, Adam Larrabee, Jake Sheps, Jamie Stone, and Tony Trishka with performances by Chris Pandolfi, The Foreign Landers with Tabitha and David Benedict, and Next Generation with Max Allard and Nora Brown, and also a very special guest lecture with Bela Fleck. So that's incredible. And the other best part, I know, I know I already said there was a best part, but this is another best part. All these lessons are recorded and posted on a password-protected site for future review. So in a way, these online camps are a compromise, of course, because we can't be there in person. But I think one of the advantages that I've taken advantage of is you can go back and access these lessons over and over again. So that's really cool, and that's going to be the case here with the Banjo Summit. Now. What you're going to want to do is, I know this is really short notice, but if you sign up before April 15th, you're going to get the early bird special, which means uh, this whole thing will only cost you $175. And if you are a student under 18, you're eligible for a scholarship. So enroll now in the Banjo Summit, www.banjosummit.org. And if any of you go, I will be sure to see you there. freshly picked episode features a deep dive track by track into the new album by Wes Corbett titled Cascade. This is one of the most exciting new releases I've heard in a while for a couple reasons, mostly just because it's all original material from Wes. He assembled a very talented all-star cast of players to play with him, and he's going to tell you all about those people. But it seems to just be one of those good, old-fashioned banjo albums with a lot of exciting banjo music to listen to. But at the same time, we all know that Wes is pushing the boundaries of what the banjo is capable of. So there's a large amount of that, too. And it just uh, ends up being a really impressive collection of music and really exciting to listen to. And I don't want to spoil any of the rest of this for you. You'll just have to hear Wes talk about it and pick up your own copy, which uh, I highly recommend doing, by the way. Uh, Other than that, I'll bring us to the interview and just leave you with, if anybody has any other comments or questions for me, get a hold of me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com 
open to any suggestions or comments or questions about this or any other episode. But uh, let's get into the album review, Cascade by Wes Corbett. So first of all, Wes, very nice to see you again, my friend. Yeah, you too. You doing good? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Doing pretty well, all considered. Yeah, likewise. So uh, even though listeners won't hear this until after December 4th, we're, we are speaking in uh, mid-November, which is ahead of your new album release. So first of all, thanks for giving me an advanced copy. I've been really happily uh, previewing it. So yeah, excited to get to discuss that with you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. You bet. So I guess, first of all, since our last episode, also congrats on being hired for your new gig with Sam Bush, although it's on... It's got to be a little bittersweet. How many gigs did you even get to play with your new band? I've played t- 21 gigs. <laughs> oh, man. I got the gig in January and then February and March. Um, we did the longest run, what was supposed to be the longest run of the year, uh-huh. um, which I guess it definitely was the longest <laughs> run of the year, uh, where we went to Colorado and back. So I played 14 gigs uh, over like two and a half weeks with the band. Um, and then played a couple gigs before that and um and then we've actually played four gigs um post that have all been like socially distanced outdoor gigs but now that now that winter has fully hit we are we are done until oh brother well count me among those who are looking forward to seeing everything get back up and running so we can uh see you try to fill those huge shoes that (laughs) that were left by by scott so should be fun Sure. I mean, he's, he's been a banjo hero of mine, you know, since I first started playing since high school. Yeah, me too. Uh, but we're here to talk about your, your new and first solo album called Cascade. So that raises the question when, and I mean, you've recorded with all sorts of different projects and as a sideman for things, why and when did you decide to do your own, uh, album under your own name? Yeah, it's been in the works actually for probably 10 years, frankly. But I've been writing material for it for a long time. I think I waited as long as I did partially because I felt like I wasn't ready and partially maybe from some time constraints. But yeah, something it all just kind of fell into place moving back to Nashville knowing that I could get the folks that I got to play on it. Um, it just it felt like it was time to do it. Excellent. So the, these are all original compositions of yours? That's correct. Um, the only one that is uh, a co-write is Stan Lee, uh, which is kind of a slower, a slower one um, that Chris Eldridge and I wrote together. So Chris, who's the guitar player in Punch Brothers, produced the record and also played guitar on it. Um, and I co-produced it. Chris and I got together probably, I don't know, 10 times over the course of like the six months leading up to the session, um, and kind of workshopped all of these tunes. I I had probably another, I don't know, six or seven tunes that didn't make it on the record. Um, so we kind of played around with all of that and, and ribbed on Stanley, uh, the melody that the guitar and the bass play together, um, that's all critter. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
we you know worked on those chords together some too he was really i mean he was super helpful with everything he had a, a heavier hand on that tune you're talking about that more i don't know if you'd call it like an ostinato type of uh bridge part to it yeah 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 so i'm kind of playing this um two against three banjo part with uh-huh. with G, uh second thing going on and then the guitar and the bass are, are playing this uh, kind of long tone unison line over top of it uh, and those the chords underneath move move around quite a bit and, and uh, Chris came up with a really beautiful melody yeah over top. yeah it is a cool one yeah that leads us right into let's just dive through some of the tracks and so the first one's boss fight and now is this a is this a video game reference yeah, it is. Um, we that tune remained unnamed until we were in the studio. And one thing that that Chris and I bond over um, is, you know, playing a fair amount of video games as kids. He's a little bit older than me, so you know his points of reference are are slightly different than mine. But the one thing that everybody in the studio uh, when we were making that, everybody could agree on that it, it sounded like a boss fight um, <laughs> the the raised uh, intensity and the the stakes are so high with it yeah it's kind of got this like juggernaut quality to it <laughs> so there wasn't a specific video game that you that you were picturing or no not necessarily i think it it just kind of it, it evokes that i don't know <laughs> frantic finality to it or something <laughs> but yeah i mean and, and you know Getting to do it with that band really, really fun. Alex Hargraves plays, um, yeah, I mean, everybody plays amazing stuff on it. The, the thing that every time I hear it still just blows me away is what Alex plays on the last section on, on the way out of the team. Okay. I'm, I'm playing the melody again, and Alex advised this amazingly cool kind of solo counterpoint line. as we were as we were mixing it you know it was kind of like at first it was like the banjo you know was still like the main focus and we were just like you know keep turning out yeah start flip-flopping a bit (laughs) yeah so you know we've heard that melody before let's hear alex shred over some really weird changes (laughs) oh totally well it's a good high energy start to the to the disc uh, one one banjo-y thing that I wanted to make sure I asked was near the end of your second solo, you have like a, I describe it as, as sounding like mandolin double stops, more sure. strummy. And mm-hmm. um, you're not supposed to be able to do that with finger picks. So what what yeah. the heck, man? It's, uh, I guess it's, um, uh, what's the audio version of an optical illusion? Um, basically I'm, it sounds like I'm playing double stops, uh, the whole time, but it's actually only every other note. It's, it's this technique that I have kind of been fascinated with for the last couple of years, but I, I tend to lead a lot of things with my index finger instead of my thumb, but you can easily reverse this technique. Okay. Um, 
So what it is, is uh, index and middle on two strings at once, and then your thumb on one of those same strings, right? So okay. open, it sounds like this. And you could reverse it, obviously, and you end up with the double stuff on the downbeat or on the offbeats. Um, there's something, I think the illusion of it being all double stops is better when the double stops are on downbeat, as in like leading it with your index. Um, so you can kind of work through lots of things, right? Um, um, you can also spread the voicings. Um, I'm just doing all of that on the first and second string, but you can spread the voicings however you want. If it's like the first and fourth string, maybe some of the illusion is broken or yeah. something. And then as, as the, um, the notes get closer and closer together, it like the illusion kind of comes back. Right. But yeah. You can, things. Um, I did improvise that whole solo and that's actually all one take. Oh, um, that's amazing. That was something I was going to, going to ask eventually as well so that that's really cool to to know now do you your single thumb notes is that always on the lower two of the notes um yeah i think usually when i do it yes let's see yeah no i don't really cross over to the first okay um, um, that's a cool idea i haven't explored that yeah just but. wondering that's a it's all new to me so <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Some something for the next album. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can work through lots of different things with that. Um, things that have sort of like an odd metered feel, uh, feel particularly cool. Yeah, lots of possibilities. So the next one, Camp Sherman, anyone who got your duo album with you and, and Simon Chrisman um, has heard this one before and it'll be familiar, but it's really cool to hear another version of it. I really love the arrangement and especially the interplay between uh, Critter and Sierra. What do you, was there something about this one in particular, talking about the group of songs from your duo album? that made it translate so well to a band adaptation? Yeah, you know, I, I think actually when I wrote that tune, I, I had a bluegrass band in mind mm. and I brought it to the duo with Simon and, and it worked really well. It's kind of its own thing. But when I wrote that tune, it was definitely with a full you know, five-piece band in mind, a really kind of lush orchestration. Cool. Were there Were there any other tunes from that duo album that, I mean, you mentioned that you workshopped several that didn't make the cut were, were any of the other ones from, from that duo album? Uh, no, that's the only one, but I, I kind of always plant once I decided, um, to make this record, that, you know, it was kind of like, okay, I'm going to, that's going to get re-recorded. And by no means does that mean that I'm unsatisfied with what I did with Simon. I just knew that it would work really well. And I think that that's, I think it's cool. I, I, I like it when, when people do that. I'd like to hear multiple versions of the same tune. It brings really different things to light. I mean, and that tune in particular, I kind of never play exactly the same way. 
um, just because the melody, it's like the, the core skeleton of the melody, I, I play the same way, but in terms of little patterns of how I execute that is always a little bit different. And I had actually, a student asked me for a tab of that and I, I gave it to them because I, I tabbed it out for Banjo Newsletter when the duo record came oh, out. Oh, okay. And, uh, and I hadn't looked at it in a long time. <laughs> And I pulled it up, um, you know, the next week and we were working on it and it was, I was like, wait, I played what? (laughs) (laughs) And, and the reality is like, uh, you know, playing with Simon and playing that, that melody versus like the opening of that tune with Critter playing rhythm on it, just Mm. different things, you know, uh, playing with Critter, I kind of roll, it's like kind of constant eighth notes for the most part through the whole thing. Whereas with Simon, there's a bunch more kind of syncopated space put in it. Yeah, all the rhythms have to bounce off whoever you're playing with a lot differently. So brings out different yeah. aspects of it. You know, I, I think there's not that many people that make me want to play blue, like actual bluegrass, but Critter is one of them. Like, <laughs> think about like the way, just the way his rhythm kind of activates my own playing uh-huh. um, that makes me want to play like grassier in a way so i feel like even though it's you know it's kind of this like sensitive mid-tempo banjo melody it's a much grassier version of it Mm -hmm. um and a lot of that i think just has to do with like how i respond to getting to play with chris yeah yeah that makes sense excellent the next one sweet simone i think is one of the more interesting ones to me i guess for a few reasons first of all in composing this one at, at least in my relatively unsophisticated experience, um, it's hard to make a banjo composition sound good that has so much space to it, and isn't it's it's sort of against our nature to not just do these streams of sixteenth notes. So, uh, was that ever an obstacle for you? And how did you? I don't know how do, how do you overcome it with a with a melody that's a little more sparse like this one? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I think the, the hard answer on that is is rely on the band. You have to trust that what's happening underneath you is is doing what it, it can and should. I mean, it took us a minute to, to kind of figure out a core groove, like a core personality for each one of the sections. Um, so we had two full days of rehearsal, uh, two like 10 hour days, and then um, five days in the studio to track all of this. Um, and actually there were a couple of power outages, so we probably lost like at least five of those hours of studio time. That was on your um, studio days that the power outage was? Full on like blackout power outages. Did you lose any takes? Thankfully, Ben Scott, who engineered the record, um, is a, a just obsessive compulsive saver. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So thank, thankfully, yeah, we, we didn't lose anything but time. But that tune is interesting. Um, I wrote it a pretty long time ago. I don't quite remember when I wrote that. And I never could really find a home with it. It didn't make sense in any of the bands that I was playing in at the time. I think I maybe wrote that when I was still in Joy Kill's Sorrow. Okay. Use the A and B sections. Um, I just really liked kind of the voice leading of the A section chords. Um, That thing. Um, So a lot of it just has like one or two notes staying, staying constant and other things changing around them. Um, so I came up with that chord progression first 
and then ended up singing that melody over top of it. And that's where that melody came from. So that's maybe part, uh, part of the answer too, to like, how do you handle or like your, your question about this, like kind of more long tone, single note melody. Yeah. Um, it came from my voice. It didn't come from the banjo. So then it's about, th- you know, thinking about the ensemble sound and making sure that that all makes sense you know, for this long tone melody to be happening over top of it. And then the B section melody, I improvise every time. It's always a little bit different. I have kind of an outline. Um, Yeah. uh, And then the C section. So this is kind of based on a Brazilian Choro feel, which the form would typically be A, B, A, C. And uh, if it's a minor tune, the C section is always major uh, and typically to the, to the relative or it's sometimes it's to the relative major and then sometimes it just goes, you know, stays in the same key, but goes minor. major. major. Okay. In this case, this just goes from minor to a major. Yeah. That was the, actually the, the next thing that I was curious about was the, the Latin rhythm to it. I didn't know if that was something that you personally built in or if that was maybe a product of those band sessions rehearsal. No, it's, it's, I think it's kind of at the core of the tune at what, like specific groove that we ended up using was, was definitely kind of a, a band construction. You know, I, I mean, I picked everybody who was playing on this record, um, not only because they're virtuosic, cause they all are, mm-hmm. uh, they're all just like amazingly empathetic ensemble players. And I knew that coming in with, with these tunes that I had, you know, that Chris and I, and, and me by myself, depending on the tune, you know, really, heavily arranged already but it, but it i think the question is like leaving the right things open for specific people to do what i know they're going to do best yeah right so not honing the arrangements so that you almost like don't have to tell anyone what to play it's like the shape of the thing itself informs what it's supposed to do because you've written to everybody's strengths which is with a band like that because <laughs> they have a lot of strengths yeah <laughs> but you know i i think that there's you know there's some really nice moments on the record you know which and i think that's what it's about it's just about knowing these players who are, i'm honored to call peers and friends knowing they're playing well enough to be like if i give them this section and it's and it's coming from this and going to this i know they're gonna do something great mm-hmm. yeah that's cool uh, did I hear some Django teases in your solo? Oh, maybe. I mean, I've, I've certainly listened to Django. I can't say I've like transcribed a ton mm-hmm. of him. Um, but I mean, I, th- I think it's like, it's hard to play a tune like that in an, in an acoustic setting and not have it reference, reference him to some degree. Yeah. You know? Gotcha. Hey folks, it's time for me to introduce you to a brand new Picky Fingers sponsor, and that's GHS Strings. Now, GHS might be a new sponsor, but uh, they're definitely not new to the string business. They've been making some of the best banjo strings on the market since 1964. They use their proprietary lock twist on the plain steel strings for incredible stability, extra large loops for easy installations on any tailpiece, and a wide range of gauged sets for every player. My personal favorite that I've been using for years is the PF145s, but they do have a lot of options for uh, whatever your preference is. And they're very durable, have a long lifespan, and probably my favorite part 
is that these things are made right down the street from me in Battle Creek, Michigan. So not only do I think they are the best strings out there, but I can feel good about supporting a local company. And I'm not the only one who thinks very highly of their strings. GHS strings are also used by J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, Todd Taylor, Bela Fleck, and a lot more. So go check out what they have to offer at their website, ghsstrings.com. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is proud to be sponsored by Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you'll learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction, with courses including Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Each course includes high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play with. So what I need you to do is join any of Peghead Nation's video courses, and you're going to get your first month's free uh, just by being a Picky Fingers listener. Go to PegheadNation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's all one word, all lowercase. And once again, that gets you your first month free at PegheadNation.com. The Picky Fingers podcast is also sponsored by Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments. We all know how cool it is to be able to support the locally owned mom and pop businesses rather than going to the big box stores. Well, with Elderly Instruments, you're getting a place that's been family owned since 1972 located in Lansing, Michigan, but they do ship worldwide. However, shopping at Elderly Instruments doesn't mean a compromise in quality. They have a vast selection of acoustic and electric guitars, banjos, ukuleles, mandolins, and all the accessories and books you might need. They have a world-renowned repair shop that sets up all the instruments, and perhaps most importantly, the down-to-earth knowledgeable sales staff that is there to help you with anything you need from advice on the high dollar vintage instrument that you're looking for right down to what picks you should buy they're happy to help and they're just a phone call or an internet search away go to elderly.com or call them at 517-372-7880 and tell them picky fingers sent you moving on to light them up i think this is a cool example of what i hear is sort of a common thread in a lot of your compositions, which is there might be one section that is either minory or bluesy or spooky or, you know, something like that, but then also has corresponding more major uplifting section, kind of what you were just talking about, like a t- the typical form of the last tune. Are you conscious of this? And is there a particular influence that that comes from mm-hmm. in your writing? Sure. I mean, in the case of Lido, I don't know about the specific influence. I mean, you can certainly hear anyone from like all the major classical composers to to Bela use use minor to major motion as as a really strong juxtaposition within composition. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty in the case of Light 'em Up, it moves uh, relative minor to relative major. The keys in the tune is in G minor, and then the B section is in B flat. Although there's um, kind of some, I don't know, whatever, like modal interchange to uh, to snag some chords from G minor. 
to make uh, some other sounds within that chord progression. But that tune actually came out, uh, I think, in a pretty logical manner. The intro was the last thing that got written, and I, I just felt like it needed another part. I, I realized, I think, that, that that tune, the kind of bones of that tune could accept a more kind of epic approach yeah. than something like that it wasn't going to be, you know, like a, a three minute concise track mm-hmm. um, that, that it could it had the strength to hold up to something longer than that. Some longer solos and, and a lot of like textural interplay. And so, but initially that tune um, was kind of written from a, from a number of perspectives. So I found this rhythm uh, on the banjo that I just really liked. That kind of roll pattern, which is, um, I guess what all... It's all thumb alternating rolls, but the first two notes are, are typically on the same string. Um, so it's like thumb index, uh, yeah, thumb index, thumb middle, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can catch doubles on the same note. Um, it's a cool little, another cool little thing that I've really liked the rhythm of. It's got this really great swing to it. So I ended up kind of building essentially the whole tune just out of that. Um, so so there it is. All right. So now we've resolved to F. So now we're going to use that as the five chord to get into the relative major. Yeah. And the section really, uh, well, oh, one detail that I forgot is actually when I first started playing this tune, that A section melody was in octave. So the first time I would play it, I would do it uh, low. And then the second on the repeat, I would do it high. Mm-hmm. Um, like that. Yeah. Um, but I ended up ditching that just with the ensemble. It kind of felt cluttered doing it that way. But there was a symmetry initially in how it was written, which is that the B section, which is all built off of that same roll pattern. Uh, is in octaves. And then, I don't know, <laughs> it felt like it needed um, something a little weird, basically. So yeah. it just flips uh, into uh, like a, a six, eight feel with this kind of sus. Um, so like B flat sus to B flat and then F sus to F to resolve back to G minor. The G minor. And yeah, the, cool. The intro just kind of came from... I, I think I kind of let the banjo guide me on that one. So we're like incorporating some of those same sus sounds. Moving a little further away from the key center, resolving actually to B flat 
and then back into G. So we kind of have a, a bunch of little borrowed aspects from the rest of the tune to kind of sew together this, this intro, which I then um, blew those changes out for Alex to solo over kind of before this long banjo solo, which I knew he would do amazing things yeah. with. Yeah, that's so cool. I think letting the banjo lead you is a good approach to just about any decision in life. What do you think? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, yeah no it it can be i think that um you know this tune there's definitely an aspect of that the banjo is leading a lot of things uh, about how this tune was put together but uh, you know again i i always try to make sure even though i'm writing what what i would call a banjo tune which i think this this qualifies as like an actual banjo tune it's you know like a lot of it's built out of one roll pattern, like one kind of really banjo-y concept that you can sing the melody, mm-hmm. right? That there's like a true long tone melody suspended within everything else that's going on. So like when I write something like that, I mostly hear fiddle, mostly hear fiddle doubling just the, the long tone aspect of it, which is exactly what happens. Yeah. Need some sustain. Uh, the next one, Stan Lee, which, uh, you know, we don't need to, to go into too much. You already kind of gave us a, a quick breakdown, but, um, you know, just in case people didn't think you were enough of a nerd for having a video game title, you, you had to follow it up with the one, two punch comic book tune, right? You're welcome. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> um, my wife is a nurse practitioner. She's a women's health nurse practitioner. And, uh, so COVID's been particularly intense for us. Um, she doesn't work at a hospital, but she she works at a, a clinic system here in town. Mm. Um, and let's see, a couple of winters ago, we were in New Orleans for her to do this uh, conference, like a you know a extended learning conference. And I tagged along because I wasn't on tour, and I had planned on kind of just you know exploring the city while she was busy during the mornings and afternoons but one of the days it was just like dumping rain Mm -hmm. and so i was hanging out in our airbnb in in new orleans and um it was actually the the day that stan lee died that i wrote that too okay and i you know i read some comic books as a kid i didn't read that many but i think that there's i i thought about his passing you know it was like you know I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss like what he brought into the world, which was this like creative and intuitive spark. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, when you think about all the, the things like all of the characters that he created, the kind of core of them is so flexible, which is so, it's so great. Right. I mean, like mm-hmm. that you can, you can read all kinds of like, social justice issues into like the core of what makes X-Men the X-Men. And I yeah. don't even know how much of that was on purpose, but that's almost, I don't really even care. It's just like someone who created these things that are, that are so, so easily built upon. Mm-hmm. I think it's really cool. Yeah. They're archetypes or something. Mm-hmm. Sure. The next one, Waltz for Courtney, another beautiful melody the main the main thing i uh had to ask about this was when you're sequencing a record i know that's not as um 
maybe consequential as it used to be when there was an expectation that people would listen to the whole thing front to back. But uh, I'm curious to your approach about placing what I view as sort of the two mellowest, softest sounding ones back to back, which is probably not what most people would choose to do. So uh, explain yourself. (laughs) <laughs> well, so uh, Chris Eldridge actually came up with this sequence. We, we tossed a bunch of sequences back and forth. And I think there's just something like a, a good sequence makes the record more than the sum of its parts. And there's something about the this kind of the story that this sequence tells that just felt better than anything else we came up with. And it's not, you know, it was, it was kind of a tough record to sequence in a way. I mean, we, we tossed a bunch of uh, different ideas around um, and we settled on this. I, I, I really like it. I don't necessarily think that um, putting two lower energy things next to each other is a bad thing. I, I mean, I, I think that um, the, the vibes of those tunes are actually like fundamentally different. Um, they kind of sure. highlight yeah. different things that, that Waltz for Courtney is actually written for my wife. Right. Um, the, the first dance at our wedding a couple of years ago, a couple summers ago, um, Alex Hartman and Brittany Haas twin fiddled that. Oh, that's, that sounds like it must've been awful. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. They were, uh, <laughs> them all right after we stopped it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it was beautiful. And, um, initially I, I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do like a big band sound with this and, and, uh, have twin fiddles on it. But then when I played it with Chris, just the two of us, it really felt right. And adding Paul in there, like Chris and, um, and Paul through playing with Punch Brothers, you know, like they just have the most, uh, um, just beautiful touch on slow material. You know, I mean, if you listen to Punch Brothers, there's just been like astoundingly amazing, delicate material that's come from them. It, yeah. And it's like sounds that, have, you know, we are not used to a bluegrass ensemble making. Absolutely. We'll treat to get to track both of those with them. Um, Waltz for Courtney, the, the version of it that ended up on the record, I think is maybe only has one edit in it. It's like maybe just two takes put together. Um, it was the last thing that we tracked on the last day. Just like turn turn the lights almost off and um, and and played that. It was really nice. And actually, my uh, it's the one thing that my wife didn't hear until the record was completely done. I, I really wanted her to uh, you know hear it when it was kind of right. a nice surprise. Yeah, I oh, mean she cool. knew it was on the record, but not not until I got, got masters final masters back did did she hear it. Oh, that's cool. And she approves, I assume? You hated it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. The next one, the it's called The Three Trees, which is basically kind of just a cool old-timey sounding tune. Um, yeah. And I just want to take a minute here. You know, everyone's playing throughout the whole project is great, but my favorite part of this is uh, Simon and how much he's proving that Hammer Dulcimer just sounds totally awesome in a quote-unquote normal instrumentation ensemble and uh i don't know i just really hope a lot of people hear it and follow his lead
Yeah, Simon, I mean, you know, we've t- I think we talked about this in the last last time I was on your podcast, but yeah. it's just a singular musician. And um, including him on this project was a, a no-brainer to me, although it, it maybe seems like, like it's out of left field for some people. But, you know, Simon's musicianship transcends the instrument that he plays. Um, which is not that's not like a rag on on hammer dulcimer there's there's lots of great hammer dulcimer players but there's something really special about just the, the music that that guy has in him um and right. yeah that's actually one of my favorite moments on the whole record is when i stop playing and simon takes this like uh, you know and i wrote it that way like <laughs> i wrote it to be this is going to be this like really spacious moment for simon to do his thing and to feature that in, in a way that, I, I, you know, I don't think it's really been him playing with a bluegrass ensemble in that way. And it, it you do have to treat the dulcimer with, um, with a, a certain respect in, in terms of um, bass, right? Like that, you know, you're adding a sixth voice to an ensemble that already has a pretty strong like cluster in the mid range. Um, and dulcimer's primary meat is in the mid range too, you know. So you you have to be careful with how you orchestrate things to make sure that it works right. But I used Bela and how he, you know, my impression of how he thinks about using Dobro and Jerry Douglas as a reference point for that on this record. Oh, where people kind of back out of the way at, at certain times to to let him yeah. poke through. Very interesting. Well, I think you, I think you succeeded, man. It definitely caught my ear what he was doing. So yeah, love hearing it. The next one titled long winter. Um, I, I love the title cause just cause of the perfect imagery. Like I might not have thought on my own of comic books and video games with some of these other ones, but definitely during this one, I could, I could feel the cold and the, you know, the hunger set in and and all the the wintry long winter things that we might associate with that so i don't know any other comments on that one that was that was my main takeaway you know another beautiful tune thanks yeah that one's pretty that's uh that's a close one for me um my mom passed away from cancer in 2012 and i wrote that that winter in 2013 i moved back to boston and was still Berkeley and there was this uh, like epic blizzard and uh, I got s- snowed in for a couple of days um, that tune originally was written the, the part that Chris is playing on guitar to open the tune um, I wrote that on banjo he's playing it note for note on the guitar um, what I wrote on banjo uh, and I was actually originally playing it on octave banjo, that, that banjo that's on a couple tracks on the record was Simon. Um, and then I sang that melody over top. The A section kind of came out just in a, you know, maybe 10 minutes or something. I mean, it's a tough time in my life. 
that tune's really connected to that. I, I mean, I, I, I changed almost, I mean, we changed nothing in terms of like the original composition of it. I got a little headier in terms of how I approached the B section. Um, it didn't all just like flow out like the A section did, but the B section um, recycles a bunch of the same melodic material, but then, but reharmonizes it in a bunch of different ways. Um, so the tune is in G minor and uh, melody note is just a G a lot of the time. <laughs> um, so the B section starts uh, on an A minor seven with the G being the, the minor seven of that A chord being the melody, right? So. To a B flat, which actually we played it more as like a B flat kind of Lydian sound. Um, but it up to E flat. Where does it go? Uh, oh, yeah, and then to B flat, uh, to C, A minor, to D. Um, so it's kind of, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's both maybe musically a little bit heady, but also emotionally really connected that one. Yeah. The intensity definitely comes through for sure. Then, uh, track 10, which is the last one, you know, another great tune. I'll just make the same comment about Simon, another good, uh, feature, for him, I don't know anything else to add. This I don't I don't have the title on this one. It's dinosaurs. Dinosaur birthday. Dinosaur yeah, Molly, birthday. Molly Tuttle named this one. We <laughs> used to as an instrumental with the Molly Tuttle band. Um, okay. and I made a few changes, um, but yeah, I love getting to hear Casey Campbell uh, on mandolin and Simon kick this tune off. Is a really cool texture. Simon Casey's playing the B section melody. Um, this is basically just a you know a, a fiddle tune written on banjo essentially, but it lays out pretty well on fiddle. We've actually started playing it in the Sam Bush band too. Oh, cool! Uh, my wife threw me a dinosaur theme 30th birthday party just to really triple down on the nerd <laughs> we're making here. Um, I, I yeah, I've always like I actually thought about becoming a paleontologist instead of becoming a musician. Oh, pretty interesting. Um, so I, I still kind of stay fairly current on um, <laughs> on your dinosaur current dinosaur events, uh, yeah, which is kind current. of an oxymoron, right? That's what I was thinking about. <laughs> uh, actually, uh, when we named this tune was when the Molly Tuttle Band played at the uh, the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh, Whoa. and. Lamana was in the audience. He's the the head curator of the of the dinosaur wing, 
Um, and I actually, I mean, I knew who he was because I've like read articles that he's written. Um, but I'd never, I didn't know what, what he looked like or anything. And he came up to me after the show. We played that tune. He came up to me and was like, hey, like, do you, uh, do you really like dinosaurs that much? Because I was like on stage. I was like, this is a dream. Like I'm playing <laughs> natural history museum right now. Like this is literally bucket list for me. Right. Um, he came up and was like, hey, do you like, do you want a private tour of the museum? Whoa. Uh, and he's he's really cool. He was really, really cool. It was so great to meet him. He's made some really amazing discoveries. And one of the things that we got to do was we went back into the uh, archive area. And the Carnegie Museum has the original Tyrannosaurus skeleton, the first one ever discovered. Oh, crazy. And um, he just started like handing me bones you felt you picked them up and felt them handed me one of the last rib bones of the first tyrannosaurus ever discovered um that's incredible yeah yeah it was really it was an amazing it was so cool (laughs) it's a it's a good thing you have such respect for it because a lot of other musicians would have started trying to figure out how they could make uh nut blanks out of them or something like that and yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Matt, Matt was, um, I think, you know, a, a fossil is literally like it's stone. It's not even bone anymore, but like, and I'm not really a religious guy, but there was definitely a, a thing like getting to getting actually hold of what was once a bone of a creature like that. It's like massive. Yeah. It was a, an amazing experience. Yeah, I get the same feeling. I've been to the Field Museum a few times and seeing those dinosaurs and all, and specifically the uh, the Lucy skeleton is just such a trip. Putting yourself into that juxtaposition with something so old—it's crazy. Absolutely. So that's that's a cool story. In general, you 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 touched on this already, but uh, you said most of your playing was improvised or at least the solos obviously the the melodies and stuff wouldn't have been completely improvised yeah yeah um yeah some of those melodies are are note for note like boss fight i play but yeah i did improvise almost everything on the record there's one spot where i well the the c section of sweet simone i take like almost the whole form on that tune and it's long and hard changes um i improvised kind of up to the C section and then ended up punching, punching something that I came up with um, for that C section, just because I really wanted it to, the shape of it just needed to be right, you know, uh-huh. um, for, for that thing to work for like the banjo to be taking such a long solo, it needs to end pretty epically, but yeah, everything else I, I, I think pretty much improvised. Wow. That's nuts. And everyone else, same thing as far as you know, yeah 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 i mean you know like obviously there's there's no like immaculate conception in terms of in terms of what improvise like what improvising really is so uh, i had like improvised over these tunes a ton Mm -hmm. you know and certainly had like certain things to kind of fall back on like certain outlines um certain licks maybe that i would that i knew i would get to but just the way my brain works. I just like almost never play the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. Even, even 
kind of has essentially the same outline, it wouldn't, it would not be note for note the same at all. Right. Well, I've, you know, I've heard you play, you know, a, a decent number of times and yeah, I, I feel like most of the quintessentially West Corbett sounding stuff managed to come through at some point through the album. So I think it's a really great representation of what you're capable of. What banjo are you playing on that? Is that still your top tension Hawthorne that you told us about last time? Yeah, yeah, that whole that uh, that whole record, except for Walter Courtney, is is on that top tension, which is a it's a great banjo. Walter Courtney is on a parts Granada, so it's a Huber neck and Huber ring, and the rest is an old pot, um, and it's tuned down tuned down to E. Okay, talk to me about the recording setup i know you're a little mu- a little more of a of a gearhead than maybe some of my other guests so so maybe if there's any special microphones or studio techniques to get the the sounds you were getting at least out of the banjo specifically uh yeah what was that all about well we we did a uh critter and i went over to ben surratt's studio and did a mic out for an evening on just on the banjo but like pre-session mm-hmm. um and the the rig that we ended up settling on, we we shot out lots of things. What we ended up using was a, a combination of things I am not uh, I've never used before, uh, which was an old R eighty four, which is a, a really spectacular ribbon microphone, mm-hmm. and then a, a, a Soyuz uh, tube microphone. I'm forgetting the model number. It's a it's a newer company. It's this Russian company that that makes like really really beautifully made microphones they have kind of what i mean the the one that i used is their tube microphone and then they have kind of a like an 84 copy and i think that's it i think they just make two things um those are both critters critter has some really nice gear um both of those run through gordon preamps which are these um (laughs) expensive uh and uh very clear muscular sounding preamps I, I really, I really like them a lot. It's actually, um, a, you know, in a way, a, a fairly simple rig to what I ended up using on Daniel Keith Hines, um, producing her record. Uh-huh. She, she's playing through a U89 and a, uh, and an N8, which is a AEA, like a new kind of new school ribbon microphone. Yeah. Um, this, beautiful sounding but both through gordon's critter brought this up with me that that like if you if you have an ensemble where everybody else is on not gordon's and the and someone is on gordon's that thing is going to be a focal point in a in a really like musical but like muscular way so when you listen to the mixes um, of my record, for instance, or Bronwyn's record, right? You you can hear that. You can hear that your ear is like, this is the focal point of the record. Interesting. Not, not, not like an overpowering way, because I mean, we worked really hard on mixes on on both those records to to make sure everybody sounds great. But Gordon's have have a kind of special quality in that way. Dave Dave Cinco is the person who you know, uses them a lot. He, he kind of either uses Gordon's or millennia's um, millennia's are kind of the go-to preamp for the classical world is my understanding. Um, so interesting. 
Go, going back to those mics now, did you have, was one of those a close mic and the other a more roomy or distant mic or were they more of a stereo configuration or what? Yeah, no, they, they weren't um, X wide or anything. Um, how we ended up doing it is, uh, let's see, they were probably six inches off the banjo head. If we're talking about the banjo head in quadrants, uh, we're talking about the the quadrant um if you are have your banjo in your lap the lower right one okay so below the tailpiece but before the bridge essentially um that's a really nice zone on a lot of banjos sometimes the quadrant just above that is also really nice so actually above your right hand i've also had really good luck recording myself and some of the banjo players that way but uh both of the diaphragms were uh as closely aligned as we could get them and i think it was in terms of distance you mean uh no just in, well in terms of distance from the head yeah yeah and uh let's see the ribbon was closer to the tailpiece and the soyuz was closer to the neck but they were like right next to each other hmm Interesting. And last time I remember you saying that one of Cinco's principles was for the diaphragm of the microphone to be parallel to the banjo head. Is that still something you follow? Yes, definitely. That's how this was mic'd. What's your perceived difference in if you don't obey that? What what is the what's the consequence of that? Uh, I would say a loss of clarity. Like uh, you end up with more overtones you don't want. There's a pre- there's a presence to it. I mean, there's a, like you know I I'm really proud of the banjo tone on on Cascade. I think it's kind of a unique sound, and and it really I mean that really is like what that banjo sounds like if if you know give if it's the right humidity and um <laughs> and the right I don't know banjos are so moody, but right. uh, that that banjo really is like that kind of present sounding yeah cool and then the i guess the only other thing i wanted to make sure that you mentioned was um i mean we we've covered a bit of this but maybe just go through your collaborators the guest musicians on on the album and give each of them a shout out because they definitely deserve it if we haven't mentioned their names yet of course they do yeah so um we talked about simon chrisman he's my uh longest uh run musical collaborator we met when i was 14 and uh he played on a couple of tracks chris eldridge of punch brothers played guitar and also produced critter is endlessly inquisitive and uh you know not to mention virtuosic in so many ways um but as a producer and as a player he's kind of endlessly inquisitive and it 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 brings such a uh Matt magic to what he does, you know, it's, it's really fun. It's really fun to get to him. Paul Cohort, um, who is basically my neighbor. He lives like four blocks away. He's the bass player in punch brothers. Also, uh-huh. um, Paul is, I think really, really unique in, in, um, someone who's so virtuosic, you know, like just, I mean, his Arco playing, um, his Bode playing is, so so beautiful he he studied with edgar meyer when he was at curtis but his pits playing is so groovy like he spent a bunch of time studying how roy husky jr played on on a uh, lot of record 
main reference point for for playing pits and it shows um he 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 just makes everything sound better um and in the same way as critter too he's kind of endlessly inquisitive about like how could something be better or or how could something fit together in a, in a new or different way which makes sense you know it makes sense punch brothers have made the music that they make it's it's not just about feely it's all of those guys are like that yeah yeah um, and uh let's see alex hargraves on fiddle i met him just maybe six months after i met simon when oh. he was like seven or something i don't know 10 years old he was really young and so good already like so virtuosic already and that there's something really special about what what he brings which is that he's just absorbed like a massive portion of Western harmony. Um, and yet he's also so restrained with what he chooses to use. He's, he's just, uh, you know, so reactively musical to what's going on around him, mm -hmm. you know? And then uh, mandolin was kind of split in half between Casey Campbell and Sierra Hall. So uh, Casey Campbell is a, a player that I met when I first moved to Nashville and um, man, I mean, he is so, he grew up here in Nashville. He's like one of the few people <laughs> yeah. from here. Um, and he's just so schooled in old mandolin playing and old country music and bluegrass. But, you know, he's also uh, a really schooled musician from a modern standpoint as well. So it's like, you know, there's nothing you couldn't throw at him that, that he wouldn't uh, kind of alchemize in this beautiful way with, with both like trad mandolin sound, but whatever the context is. And somehow it, it works. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he adds, I think on the tracks that he's on, adds this uh, really rooted thing. And then Sierra Hall um, is, you know, one of the like bright spots my whole generation in terms of in terms of musicianship. Her, I mean, like watching her. I mean, we've we've gotten to play music together in a number of contexts, um, and I've just I'm always so excited to get to play with her and and like arrange music with her. Yeah, I think she's one of the most talented musicians of my whole peer group yeah brilliant for sure um, um and then honorable mention goes to noam pekelny's hilarious testimonial on uh on the album sleeve people have to read that it's it's a it gave me a chuckle yeah it's pretty good i i mean he also uh i did a, a crowdfunding campaign i just did pre-orders for the record uh it was a while ago now um i'm really thankful to to everybody who pre-ordered the record through that i just like you know offered some lessons and also offered digital and physical copies of the record the only like kind of goofy thing that was on there was um a glossy print of me and my cat jane that's something <laughs> Um, which, uh, you know, that's obviously the best one. How, how many of those did you, did you get rid of? 11, actually 11, <laughs> 11 people bought that and they weren't even all family members. I'll tell you that. Um, but yeah, no, no, also did a really great, a great cameo in, in the, like in the crowdfunding video as oh, well. I, I'm sure I saw it, but like you said, it was a while ago, so I can't, I can't 
recall it, but I might have to revisit that. That's cool. He opens um, the whole thing holding, holding three top tensions. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, nice. Now that we've sold everyone on how great this album is, tell them how to purchase it or also visit you to hear about your other projects and, and all that business. How do they find you? Yeah, so um, I'll have a store on my website, which is uh, westcorbett.com. You can purchase the record through there. You can also get it all the normal places, stream it all the normal places. You know, if you are used to buying records through, like physical records through CD Baby, you can also buy physical copies there. Um, of course, you know, uh, just uh, like a music business thing, you know, streaming records makes me almost no money. Um, so if, if supporting musicians is, is something that's important to you and that sounds so guilt trippy, but you know, like it's streaming, streaming records through Spotify or iTunes. Like I make like, you know, fractions of a penny. Yeah. Um, so if it's something that, you know, if that you find yourself listening to a lot, buying a physical copy or, or buying the actual record on iTunes, I think, um, makes a bigger difference to me, um, and to everybody, all of my peers. And what was the other question? I think that was it. Just how, how do people find your music and find what you've been up to? If they, you know, if tour dates ever happen again, they might want to come see you also. So, yes. Yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, you can also uh, follow Sam Bush on Instagram. He, he actually posts a lot of uh, really great content of him playing and like telling stories and goofing around. He's such a uh, a notorious ham. So, yeah, what, uh, his one for, that I saw yesterday. What was he? He trying? He was trying to cook and play, and he was like in an apron. I don't, I don't know. That sounds right. I haven't seen that one yet, but yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to hear me play with the Sam Bush Band, then then his calendar. I'm also, uh, you know, teaching teaching the camps and stuff. I'm also available for for private lessons um, in person in Nashville once. COVID is over or online, um, you can reach out to me through my website. Excellent. All right, Wes. Well, it was great catching up with you. Uh, thanks for everything. Loving the music and uh, hope to see you again soon. All right. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much. You bet. I really hope you enjoyed this freshly picked look at the album Cascade by Wes Corbett. Once again, thank you so much to Seth Hardiman in honor of his cousin, Warren Kennison Jr., and in memory of his late wife, Jolene. Once again, go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast for information about how to become a supporter and also how to get in on those very important picker video sessions that we have coming up on April 21st. Contact the show, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And that's going to do it for this episode. I look forward to seeing you all next time. Bye.